This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send handpicked books to your door. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and they'll send you any book of your choice from their shop free when you use the promo code MAGICHOUR. Members also get exclusive perks like signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in their online bookstore, and more. That's charcoalbookclub.com and use the code MAGICHOUR to claim your free book. February 25th, 1971. Dear Danny, your check arrived this morning. Stephanie and I are elated. I've been looking at scenes of the film and think it could be better than anything I've done. The best I could do for you and myself is to make the film as amazing as reality. You are a remarkable person, not because you give money to someone, but because you give it to another filmmaker, someone like yourself. I really can't get over it. I never could, but having the money next to my rewind sends my mind to reeling. We will make the best film we can. Also, we'll see you in New York the first week of April. I hope someday you can see the little town of Lanito where we are. Muchos gracias, amigo. Danny. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. That was a letter that Danny Lyon wrote to Danny Seymour in receipt of the $7,000 that he gave him to finish his film, Lenito. That check would change his life. As a result of Danny Seymour financing his film, Lyon was able to use his own savings of $5,000 to buy a piece of irrigated land in New Mexico. He eventually split up with Stephanie and met Nancy, whom he'd go on to marry and work side by side with for the next 45 years. An artist herself, she worked with Danny on his films and books and became his partner and confidant. When Danny introduced me to Nancy, she was lying down doing a New York Times crossword puzzle, and as she so warmly greeted me, she also got Danny in on the clue she was working on that they tried to hash out together. The house that they live in now, where we did this interview, is the same house that Danny built with an undocumented Mexican worker named Eddie in 1971. We had this conversation in their living room filled with history books, strange beautiful chess sets, and family photos from over the years. I asked him about how he ended up here in the first place. I ended up in New York. I was always in and out of New York. And in, in 60, by 69, I was taking cocaine with $100 bills. And I saw blood coming out of my feces. And there were girls everywhere. And I started doing pornography because it was the only thing I had in photographs. So I'm photographing people fucking in mirrors and stuff. And it's all pretty gross and intense. And New York is a hyper-intense place. It's famous for it, you know. My first wife, she used to call it energy, but I don't really need energy. I'm such a manic person. So I, I, I don't know. I, I never had lived anywhere. I, I had moved. I, I used to think that I, because I'm, I'm a real New Yorker. I was born in New York. I was born in Brooklyn. And, and, and I, I used to think oh, every year as I went 800 miles further west, meaning I went to Atlanta and I was a civil rights guy. Then I moved from there and I went to New Orleans because that's where I went when I fled the movement. I lived in New Orleans. And then I moved to, to Texas to do the prison thing. I ended up living in Houston. And from Houston, I went to Albuquerque. And then I stopped. By then, I was 27. 
and you know, time to settle down, as they say in the movies. And I didn't like California because uh, California was modern. I never liked modern things, and I fell in love. You know, uh, a lot of people do. Edward, is it Edward Albee or I don't know? Yeah, I think so. The Monkey Wrench Gang. Who wrote hmm. that? I'm not sure. Oh, you're a great literary interviewer. Yeah. How are we going to talk about these fucking books if you don't know who wrote the <laughs> Monkey Wrench Gang? Anyway, he wrote it. And he described his first entrance to the Rio Grande Valley, and he, which is where we're sitting and where you were last night. And he came in from the West, and he physically described what it's like to come in on the highway and come down. You drop down into Albuquerque if you come from Gallup, because this is a valley. And any way you come, you're going down. And the Rio Grande River, which is about a half a mile from where we're sitting, sits above a, a cleft in the earth that, that, that uh, goes down a, a really great distance. Into, it's a slash into the bedrock of earth. And someday, geologically, this house and all of Albuquerque is going to fall in this hole. There's, no, nothing's going to stop that. And that mountain outside, which we can see, is 10,000 feet high, the top. And, and, and I'm a rock collection. You can go to the very top of the mountain and you can pick up brachiopods, which are seashells and clams and oysters. And, and you have to ask yourself, well, what are all these uh, sea, sea things doing on top of a mountain? And the answer is that that mountain was ripped out of the earth and pushed up sideways, which is true of all of the Rockies and all of the West, because, because geologically it's the newest part of North America. You came out here and you built this home. You built the house that we're in right now. Was there a kind of a feeling or a need to create that for yourself? Yeah. Yeah? I love building a house. Yeah? Because, you know, and, and by then I was keeping a diary. And one of the lines was that for six months, it, nothing, nothing to show and nothing to sell. And, and that was a reference to the fact that you know, from the beginning, I've been not only showing my work, I've been selling my work. And I literally, I I was determined early on to be, to support myself by making photographs. Mm -hmm. No matter how little money was. And it wasn't so little, but, you know, to get a picture published, you get $50 or $100. And even as a student, I, I, I started getting money because I was a student photographer. And the reason was, you know, I knew about Magnum, and these guys did very compromising work. They did commercial work. Mm -hmm. That continues to be true to this day, by the way. You know, I mean, Andy Leibowitz, God bless her and her work. I mean, she works for American Express Company. Mm. There are endless examples of that. But, but you know, back then, it you know, was not considered an art. Photographers were not treated as artists or thought, thought of as artists. And for good reason. They did all this shit all the time. And then they'd, anyway, you name any Magnum photographer, whatever they did, they also worked for corporations, did annual reports, because they, they paid big rents. And, and I said, that's not for me. So this line in the diary was nothing to show, nothing to sell. It, it was the happiest period of my life. And, for, and it, this was six months. It took six months to build this house. So all I'm doing is like driving trucks around, getting adobes, bringing stuff in, being involved with this worker or workers, 
and making this house. And it took six months, and we went into the winter. People said, you can't make an adobe house in the winter. And one guy said at a store, I'd never heard of a Jewish contractor before, <laughs> which was funny because I wasn't a contractor, but he seemed to have figured out I was Jewish, which wasn't really any of his business. Uh -huh. It's like being queer back then was nobody's business. Now we wear it on our shoulders. I'm a queer Jew, you know. But we didn't do that then. And so I kind of jumped because I had a big flatbed and I'd say, okay, I need a thousand feet of, you know, board feet of one inch rough pine, one by 12. Mm. And he said, that's funny. I never heard of a Jewish contractor before. And he looks me in the eye like, you know, I'm looking for what exit can I run out of, you know? <laughs> and so I built a house. And then later I, I did think about it. And I think this was a mistake, but I grew up in Queens in New York City. It's all pavement. And they sent me to Pink Camp. And, Pink you know, Camp. historically, Jews were not allowed to own land. Part of the pale was they were confined to a certain area and they were confined to cities. And they didn't, they were not allowed to own land. And so Jews were not farmers. They were mostly, you know, traders and dealers. And, you know, my grandfather sold books and other people were tobacco merchants and whatever. And I think, I mean, romantically, I like the idea that I was establishing a family home and there was dirt, eight acres. You know? And even though I'm from a city and even though I'm very gregarious and social, and even though I'm an artist who supposedly makes it, I'm supposed to make a living out of the art scene, I would spend most of my life on farms. So... You come out here when you're when you're around twenty. You're in your late twenties. I want to talk a bit a, a bit about photography, and I want to the, the thing that I'm curious about. You want to talk I, about photography? Yeah, a little bit, just uh, a little why bit. Why do you want to talk about photography? <laughs> <I mean. laughs> well, <laughs> what did Nietzsche say? God is dead. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing that I'm curious about. You do the bike ride. The, the bike riders comes out in 1968. Conversations with the dead came out. 71 that was a bit later but you were doing the bike riders work in the early mid 60s right that's correct you were so young you were in your early 20s then you're born you're born 42 right so early 60s you're you're 20 you're 20 22 you're really young and those pictures are so graphically strong and compelling the civil rights and the bike riders, they're different, but they're very sophisticated pictures. What were you looking at that fed, well, you, know, I don't that know fed you? The theater, I'm a huge Walker Evans fan. Yeah. And you can find Walker Evans and you can find Renaissance paintings and you can tell he's copying a Renaissance painting. I mean, when in doubt, use a master. Yeah. So I, I was a University of Chicago student and I think we had three We There was a humanities one was required. So that's a class I took when I was 17. Because I was 17 and 18 my first year in school. Yeah. And that was required of all students. You want to push it? Yeah. Absolutely. That, and that was required. And there were three weeks was devoted to painting, to visual art. And I still remember this guy. We, we'd look at like a Bruegel. Well, I love. I would love to imitate Bruegel. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the some of the one of the prison things is called the Ellis Woods, and it's a copy of a Bruegel. 
and I remember, and he would say, "Oh, you know, this is the foreground, this is the background." I thought that was cool. Mm. So I would, and, and Edwards, you Edwards, he would look at my pictures when I made them, and when I did the McHenry track, which was with a Rolleiflex, and was shot through a fence. That was the foreground, and then the picture itself showed these dirt bikes scrambling. In the background, you saw this woods. He'd say that was a great picture. He'd go, oh, my. And by the time he had one in his house, by the time he died, he said it was the greatest picture ever made, you know, because he, he was full of superlatives. You know? And that was looked like a Dura etching. It looked like some German thing in the woods. You know? So I wasn't naive, and, you know, my parents were sophisticated. I grew up in New York City. My mother took me to the Metropolitan Museum. Hmm. Were you looking at, was, was Cartier-Bresson a big one for you? Uh, you know, I think as a kid, even before it starts for me, yeah, I think Cartier-Bresson, Eugene Smith, you know, Eugene Smith was a life guy. You saw his work in life. What did you think of life? Well, later I would go on to hate life and, and say I wanted to destroy life. But the truth is, you know, I don't think 12-year-olds feel that way. And it came was on the table every day. But I still have a book that I really love, which was, uh, I'm going to get it. I'll show you this book. I think it had a huge effect on it. I'm going to bring it in. What's this we're looking I at? Used it in, it, I used it in junior high school and maybe even in high school for, to write reports. Hmm. I remember going in there and copying the captions. And, and that's called an illustrated history. You know, I was reading about a guy who came to America and he became famous in Germany for doing these illustrated histories, which means that the works themselves, which in his case were about Lincoln and stuff, were a combination of, of, of captions and pictures. And I was, what's that called? The American Past, right? Yeah, this is called it's The American incredible Past. incredible yeah. book. Yeah. And so I think because I would become a bookmaker pretty quickly. I really fell in love with the idea of writing captions. You can become famous doing a book. So you saw books as something to become famous with and something that, that can gain you respect. I'm curious how you saw yourself as a photographer early on. What did, what did you see your role as a photographer to be? So we have a running argument in this house about the word famous. Okay. There are other ways to talk about this. What if I wanted to be influential? What if I wanted to change the world? You know, my generation wanted to change the world. And some of us and some of the things that happened did change the world, change the whole world. So I, I had that kind of mindset. I wanted to be a player. I wanted to influence people. I thought of myself as a journalist, as an idea person. But I didn't want to be, I, I mean, I never was able to work in groups, really. And I didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to, within that context, preserve my voice and my individuality. And that's the difference between being in a book and a magazine. Because magazines famously came with editors, I thought. Hmm. So you started doing this thing that I guess, I don't know what you called it, 
what you call them, and I guess might now you might refer to it as long form reportage, where you ba- where you go and you kind of, I mean, you did it with the bike riders where you immerse yourself in, um, in a a setting for a long period of time in order right. to work. How did you but, have the idea to do that? Yeah, the prison took 14 months. I, I lived in Texas for 14 months and pretty much did nothing but go into the prison. Mm. The bike riders was on and off, but then the same thing. I, I moved to Chicago. I would tend to, and, and and lower Manhattan was done in my backyard, but I would tend to move to where I was working, so I would just do that. Just do that. And when I made the decision to come here, which was a... You know, and it didn't work out that way. But but when you're young, you you have these ideas that that you can control yourself in the future and you can create your own own life and everything. And I thought, well, this is a really interesting place. You know, this place has funky old architecture. It had Indians. It had people who spoke Spanish at the post office, even though they had been in in the country for. 500 years. Santa Fe is 100 years. It's a, Santa Fe is the oldest, ca- and I don't like anything about Santa Fe. Santa Fe is the oldest capital in, uh, this, in the United States. It predates, uh, you know, Plymouth Rock by 100 years. And I thought Indians, Chicanos, you know, it's physically beautiful. When it's overcast, the light is incredible. Uh... I thought, well, here's a place I could spend a lifetime working. And there was another book at the time that influenced me, a picture book, and it was about Faulkner. And the pictures were made, I think, by Ezra Stoll and Cartier-Bresson as a, together, or one of them quit. And it was called Faulkner Country. And it basically were pictures of Faulkner. You know, there's a famous one of him and his dogs that Cartier-Bresson did. But but it took place in a county, in one place. And I thought, well... And my mother adored Faulkner as, you know, for, for the as a writer. He had won the Nobel Prize in literature. I think. And, and I thought, wow, well, he spent his whole life writing about one little place. Maybe... I thought this place is rich enough to do that. And ironically, many, many of the great films I made... Were, were made right here, within hundreds of yards or 20 miles of this house. Hmm. We were just talking about Hugh Edwards before, and he was the curator of photography at the Art Institute of Chicago. How did you meet him? So he's actually the associate curator of prints and drawings. That's one thing. Second of all, in the beginning, museums did not collect photographs. And when Alfred Stieglitz died, his wife, Georgia O'Keeffe, gave his photographs and divided them in half and gave half of them to the Art Institute of Chicago and half of them to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Meanwhile, back in New York, my father was an ophthalmologist and Stieglitz was one of his patients. Mm -hmm. It gets worse. Stieglitz was one of your father's patients. Right. And so... Mm -hmm. When I was about five, Stieglitz was coming to my father on a bicycle to have his eyes examined. And he had given as a gift one of his, uh, I don't know if it was the steerage, but one of these photographers, which are 
worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to the secretary. I was unaware of this, but my father was aware of it. My father was a very good photographer, what they call the amateur photographer. And he also was a wonderful filmmaker. And these films on Vimeo, you can see them free. It's just like Oprah, where millions of people will go. Go to the... <laughs> You, you know, there was a review of the New York, in the New York Times, yeah. and 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 online they they had a link to my website, and they showed Nino's Abandonados, and they said you could buy, you know, and the link says you can buy, you can buy it because we sell DVDs for yeah. you know thirty dollars. And I, if I get an order by PayPal, I go in and I say, hey, Nancy, we just made $40. This is great because you know, yeah. it's PayPal. You know, and then you can spend PayPal. So we got a PayPal thing, and, and that's how the money comes in. And, and I get this order, and then I go in and I take the disc with the cover, which is like all handmade, and I put it in a padded envelope and the postage, and I take it and I mail it. And I thought, fuck, this is in the New York Times. I mean, I'm going to get a thousand orders. You know, is it going to ruin my life? You yeah. know? And I didn't get any orders. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, so my father is an ophthalmologist. Stieglitz is a patient. And I grew up in, in an apartment house in, where it was mostly Jewish people in Queens, but they were just people to me. But it's called Kew Gardens. Buildings are still there. They look the same. It's still a Jewish neighborhood. And my best friend, I'm on the second floor in 2H, and on the fourth floor is my best friend named Stephen Lowe. And we're buddies. And, and we appear in board to film, and Stephen Lowe is reading a comic book. We're reading comic books together. I mean, this is when I'm like, you know, six years old. or seven. And Robert Frank leaves... Switzerland, I think in 1947. When he first came to America, he didn't go to the Cedar Bar. These, the Lowe's, who were distant relatives, were waiting for him at the boat and took him to Queens. So I think for about a week, little Danny Lyon is on the second floor and the real Robert Frank, who has not done the Americans yet, uh -huh. is on the... In my, with my best friend. I had no knowledge of this or anything. So those are so Robert's there. Stieglitz is my father's patient. My father was a photographer. I was a natural. When I was 17, I go to Europe. My dad says, you're going to Munich, which I was, with my brother. Buy this camera. He picks out an EXA, e -A, a single lens, East German-made reflex camera. It, it's a serious, serious camera. He said, use that. And that's my first camera. So I have a father who is kind of steering me along. And that's the beginning. And the exit becomes an exacta, becomes a Nikon reflex, and I become very famous quickly. And within a few years of that, I remember parking my motorcycle. And, and his dad comes in from the office where he's still a doctor. And he looks at me. And by then, I'd gone through the civil rights. I had taken the bike riders but it wasn't published yet and i was doing lower manhattan and he and he meets me and i'm parking my tribe and he says to me i hope you're not planning to be a photographer your father says this to you i was already world famous <laughs> well i think you know now i'm a father and i'm a grandfather 
And when you have children, you, you worry about them surviving. I mean, the, the bad scenario is the kid won't leave the house and always has his hands out. The good scenario are strong individuals that, that are happy and do things and can make a living. And so I think that that was his concern. You know, he wanted me to succeed. And, you know, he had succeeded as a doctor. He owned a home. You know, he had overcome fleeing Nazi Germany and all these things. And so I think that's what he was concerned about. What he was really saying is, I'm concerned about you, you know, making a decent living as a photographer because, I mean, it's stupid being a photographer. Other than the general parents' concern, why do you think he was concerned? Like, what kind of kid were you? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you realize how lowly photographers were regarded at that time. This was not a serious way to make a living. Photographers had studios and took pictures of babies. Mm-hmm. My, I had a cousin who was, took pictures of me. I had a little photo studio. I had another one who was an actor. These were German immigrants, you know. Hmm. Uh, what kind of kid was I? You know, that's a good question because uh, I remember being called Dopey Danny D, which I didn't like. (laughs) And I I remember, you know, crying when kids picked on me. On the other hand, I have a documentary movie evidence in this film, Childhood. The name's taken from Tolstoy. The film is free on Vimeo. And it's called Childhood, and it was shot by my father. And, and, it, and, and it shows me from birth until when I'm about 16. And I think when you look at this kid who, I mean, I look, I think I'm amazing. I'm, I mean, I'm, a, I'm coming down a, like a, a, I'm using a scooter going down into traffic. I'm like four, going like 30 miles an hour and loving it. So... I, I, I think I did all right as this little kid. Another time I'm in the West, I'm crawling up a mountain. So I think it's different of what you were and what you feel like inside. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that I felt it. I don't think I felt like Danny Lyon inside. Hmm. And, and, I, and this whole idea of Danny Lyon was a creation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a story you tell about being invited to show some slides at Richard Avedon's oh, studio. That was horrible. So you're showing you're showing the bike riders, you're showing civil rights work, you're showing prison work, you're showing Lower Manhattan. Yeah, and I that, didn't show that that night, but but that did, was my history. That was your Richard history. Okay. Avedon knew it. Avedon knew it. The, the pictures I was actually showing were these prostitutes in South America. Okay, it was early color work, and it was done ten years before these people who became very famous doing color work, but that's what it was. There were color chromes I'd shot in these whorehouses in a bear, in a neighborhood called Tesca in Cartagena, Colombia. Hmm. 
And that's what I was showing. So you're showing that work, and then Avedon gets up in front of everyone, and he says, he says, look at all this work. He says, prison work, you got the bike yeah, route, civil rights stuff, prostitutes in Colombia. Right. Who is the real Danny Lyon? Yeah, right. I was wondering if you always saw photography as this tool to kind of figure that out. To figure it out? Yeah. Or to create uh, well, it. Well, the short answer to that is no. No. You know, I, I write about it in a different way, Jordan. I, I talk about being happier inside other people's reality. In other words, instead of staying home and smoking pot and being miserable or lonely, it's a lot more fun to be riding with the Chicago Outlaws. It's even more fun to be in a cell of a guy who murdered a couple people. Fun in the sense that I get up to, can leave the cell and go home and fuck my girlfriend or smoke pot or I can even shoplift or I don't get caught, you know. That, I mean, one, one guy said you're slumming. I, I got in a thing with a guy named Strauss at the University of Chicago. People used to say, why are you photographing these lowlifes? You know, again, and it's hard to think back then. You, you think queers were in the closet. I mean, everybody, I mean, people were so prejudiced Meaning people like us who were educated, who read books, really did look down on the other people. You know, we're raising, apparently there's a political schism now, which is similar, about liberals don't, you know, they call the flyover country and they don't really care about everyone. And it's, and it's all come home to roost with this maniac we got as president. But uh, one is, I, I think I'm, you know, just... I, I was always happy. I'm always been happy working because I lose myself in these things. But I think that's that's true of a writer, or a poet, or a painter, or any artist. You know, I did a thing where I went on desert and photographed rocks. So I wasn't going there for the company, and I wasn't going to, to sit with anyone. I was photographing a rock, but I love doing it. So. I mean, that just says something about me and what I'm up to. I tend to project human feelings into rocks and buildings and dogs. And That book there is about a dog, but the dog can talk, mm. which, you know, is all up in your head, you know. When you were doing that work, when you were going, when you were riding with the outlaws and you were going into prisons, was there a certain kind of romance to it that, um, that changed once you actually did it? Did it change from your preconceived notions to doing the work to afterwards? A change in what? A change in your idea of how you thought about those things. You, you know, uh, Ute Skilton, who did a retrospective for Germany about 25 years ago, asked me a question because inter she interviewed me and wrote about it. And, and she said, did I ride with the outlaws because I wanted to photograph them or because I wanted the adventure? Meaning I thought it was exciting and I liked writing them. And at the time, you know, I thought the question was insulting, which it's not, because I thought, well, obviously, I mean, the, the true answer is, you know, I was a journalist and this was the right way to write about these people and take pictures of them. But as I've gotten older, I've really begun to question all this. I loved riding a motorcycle. I was nuts. 
I was crazier than these people. I just loved it. I loved the speed. I loved all of it. So Uta Skilson might have been right. Maybe I really did this because I wanted to be a Chicago outlaw. In fact, you know, I'm a Jewish guy from the university, and Jewish guys and university guys didn't. There were no university guys at this. So maybe that was real, and part of me simply wanted to cross a line, a social line. Let's talk about the films for a second. You were um, so you you were mostly photographing in the '60s. You do you know you're doing these projects. You're doing these books. And then all of a sudden your interest shifts a little bit and you start making films. Your first film is Social Sciences tw- uh, 127. Right, in a tattoo shop. Oh. Hmm. How did that come about? How did you, go, how, how did you get into it? You, you know, it's like an orchestra and playing, it's the difference between playing a violin and, and conducting an orchestra or writing music for a guitar and writing music. For, so to me, the, there was, you know, cinematography and stills are similar they're similar so i i felt that in movies i could combine my skill as a cinematographer i was a natural cinematographer because i'm a photographer but you know i could it would be more complicated there could be characters more like a book and writing and the truth is other than one film which is really rotten which I made when I was living with, right after Robert and was very influenced by Robert. All of the films are nonfiction. I don't like the word documentary. And they're pure realism, which I felt was the power behind the bike riders. These photographs, which you said are so graphic, other people that call cinematic, they're real. I mean, this kid snapping his finger in the hair in the air was doing that, you know, the policeman giving them the finger. Those are real people standing there. I'm not saying, pardon me, would you move your balls around so I can get in focus, you know? Yeah. Even crossing the Ohio is made from another motorcycle. I'm on a motorcycle. Mm. I'm not driving it because I would have been killed, although I have, the parts of my movie are made when I'm driving a, a, I'm driving an automobile and filming through the window while I'm driving with no one around, which is a good way to kill yourself. (laughs) But but Crossing Ohio is made from another motorcycle. I mean, the only setup is I knew the guy, and I said, let's go for a ride, you know. Mm. So they're real. The power is always from reality, and that's true of everything I do. When when you first started making films, how did you find your subjects? How did you find Bill Sanders, who was the star of Social right. Sciences 127. How'd you come to him? You know, it's my first film, and, and I, man, in some ways it's my best film, or people like it anyway. And, you know, I had been working in the prison, and I got very friendly with some of the prisons. And one of them was Jimmy Renton, who was in doing 11 years for, he was still in drugs, he got shot, and anyway. He was near the end of the sentence, and he was into photography. He had done lithography as a kid. I'm getting dried up and thirsty. You want me to get you some water? Yeah, I shouldn't even be drinking it. Maybe. I'll finish the story. So he had done lithography as a kid. He was in El Reno, which is a federal penitentiary here in Oklahoma, nearby. And he said, you'd really like this guy. He said, you should go check out this guy. So the way I found Bill Renton was from... The way I found uh, Bill Sanders was from Jimmy Ratton, who was a professional bank robber and thief. 
And he had been there and met him, and he said, this is a great character, you like him. He was right. And, of course, Renton would go on to murder policemen, murder five people, and, and be the subject of Like a Thief's Dream, which we sell on PayPal for $29. <laughs> and if you ask for a signature, we'll sign it. I just... <laughs> Well, you know, these books are totally ignored. And, and, you know, they say there's no second acts in America. Mm -hmm. That's a line from Fitzgerald, who was on the skids and was a friend of Hemingway's. But what, the truth is... What do you think he meant by that? He meant that if you're a famous photographer, no one's ever going to look at your films. Mm. And, if, and if you make films and photographs, no one is ever going to take you seriously as a writer. It means you get one shot in America. Hmm. So you're doing Social Sciences 127. You meet, you, you come across Bill Sanders. He's this colorful character. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with it? Or were you kind of Yeah, going... I knew right away. I, I did want to make my first film. And I think I thought it was perfect. And I thought it's about a photographer. And I thought, that's cool. I'll make my first film. He was a photographer. Bill Sanders. Yeah, because he photographed... That's right. Dude. All the girls he tattooed, and he put the pictures on the wall. And his and he put them with thumbtacks into wallboard. And the, the room was small, much much smaller than this. So I I was saying when I do something, I have to define it in my head. How? Well, you need perimeters. So I thought perfect. I this I'll do the whole film. In a room, it's 10 feet by 12 feet by 10 feet. That's my perimeter. This whole film will take place in this one. One guy talking, he's a great talker. And in fact, I shot one other scene, which was meant to be, I think it was meant to be the last scene in the book, in the book, in the last scene in the film. And I thought, you know, Bill Sanders kind of lectures the way he <clears throat> talks We'll pretend he's a professor. I'll put him in a classroom. I get all these pretty girls, a number of which had been my girlfriend. I'll put them all in the room, just girls. And he can give a lecture on tattooing, and I'll film it. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I did, and that was supposed to be the end of the film. But when I edited it, I thought, wait a second. And I did something that was clever and good, but that's editing is different than making something. And I think that mashes with your just working off of instincts and you, you go you're going to edit this so so i took that scene and put it in the front of the film and the film so the film begins in black and white the guy's giving a lecture and you think he's a professor and then he says something professors don't say and he says it to one of these pretty girls he says the word ass he said, oh, that would look nice on the ass in particular. And when you hear the word ass, you're going, he's a professor. And at that moment, the film cuts from black and white to a color shot, I think through the window of a guy's ass, because he's putting a big thing on a guy's ass. The other thing, because <laughs> we were talking about queers, <laughs> was I knew a handsome guy lived with me, and... I don't know why I knew it, I knew Saunders didn't like this guy. I, I don't I, which means they must have been together. But he came into the classroom. 
he steps in, you just see him standing there. I mean, I'm not even sure why I did it or the sequence. But, but I set up one day for him to visit Bill Saunders. I think that was the setup. I, I think I, and this is not realism. I said, I want to bring someone in to look at these walls because they're so amazing. Plus, I was shooting reversal film. And reversal film had intense, beautiful, rich colors. Meaning I was shooting black and white reversal and color reversal. And I shot this in black. I was mixing up black and white and color intentionally within the film, which was mostly color. And this fellow, whose name I forget, this blonde guy, comes in and he looks at the wall and I film him. And that's, that's what you see. But the next day I show up and visit Saunders and he goes crazy. And he makes a speech. He says, I'm not making a film about queer roles. So he immediately decides that this guy is a homosexual or someone who prays. He seems to be mixed up between homosexuals and people who are queer role with someone who would prey on homosexuals. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't like this guy. I think he thought he was a homosexual. I don't know what. But he goes nuts. And he makes an amazing speech. Say, I'm not making a film about queer roles. And he goes on and on. He pours a drink on himself. He pledges his loyalty to me. And, and I had been in New York, and when I came back, he said, and you're going to like this story, he said that a, someone from the University of Texas had come in with a camera and wanted to make a film about him. Mm -hmm. And when I heard this story, that someone had showed up in my absence, I said, if you make a film with this guy, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not going to make this film. So he follows that with a speech that I, I threw the goy out. <laughs> and he says, and I give exclusive rights to you, a certified Brooklyn Jew, exclusive rights to make photographs in my shop. What more do I have to do to prove I'm not an anti-Semite, a pro-Nazi, or an unmitigated monster? And he pours a drink on himself. You know, I said to Julian Cox that the show was tame because I have pictures of, of girls in bed, I have pictures of fucking, I have pictures of guys fucking each other, and none of that's in the show. And I said, Julian, isn't the show kind of tame? Because I was kind of saying, well, you know, Julian, he's British, maybe he's being a little prudish. He said, don't worry, Bill Sanders makes up for all of that. Mm -hmm. He insults every single, he's a misogynist, he hates women. He makes cracks about Jews, queers, and Mexicans, who he calls beanheads i mean these names so how did you so how did you see okay so that, that's interesting because i'm curious how you how you process that you have this guy who's this really colorful character he's like an amazing to, to to look at and to watch but he's also saying all this shit he's, he's saying all this controversial shit that is right. not very nice and is not cool right and he makes an incredible anti-war speech it's absolutely brilliant. Hmm. He says, how did we get involved in some nation that no one can even locate on the map? Hmm. And he makes this amazing speech to a Marine. He's talking about Vietnam. He's talking about Vietnam during Vietnam, and it's just fucking brilliant. Mm -hmm. So is there something about... So how do you yeah. reconcile that? I have no problems with that at all. Zero. I mean, he's one guy. I mean, we're not electing him president, or he gets one vote. I mean... But but isn't it funny that, that a guy who is so against the war is also a misogynist, a queer hater, and and hates Mexicans and all this stuff? Was there something just very... He's drunk, too. He's drunk, too, right, which you could tell. You is it? Know. Yeah. 
Was was there was there just like a was there a humanity in that that you saw that was maybe you know what bothers me on a more serious level is a lot of people in my early films are drunk and people when they're drunk are defenseless and exposed hmm. and in that sense I don't say you're enabling but you know you're basically okay you're funny because you're drunk but it's not funny to be an alcoholic he died soon after the film though Sanders. So let me ask you another question about. This. I saw him as a f- character like Flagstaff, mm-hmm. a very funny person. Hmm. How seriously would you want to take him politically, or how, what's the word even? Is he putting this on for me? There's a camera on. You a certified Brooklyn Jew? What are you? Is you a certified? You're worse than me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, you, in other words, is he doing this to play to the camera and be outrageous? It's possible. Yeah. I want to ask you, um, I guess, one last question that has to do with it has to do with books. It's got to do with photography. It's got to do with anything that you kind of intake, anything that you experience. It was a question that you said that you wanted to ask Hugh Edwards that you never had a chance to ask him before he died. The question is, how do you know when something is good? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Well, so so Edwards would look at these pictures, and I was saying, so I was lucky. So here I am, and I'm really just a kid, and I was at the university, and someone says, you know, that guy can give you a show at the Art Institute. So that's my ambitions kidding, kicking in. And he had ju- was a judge in a show. And I see him. And he's very friendly to people. Oh, very friendly to young guys. He bought, someone said he bought every new novel by a young man as when it was published. Every one. Mm. And he knew Kenneth Anger. He, he knew John Retchie. You know, he, he really lived in a world of literature. He was self-taught. And read, read in many languages. And so I start showing him my pictures. And he says, oh my, he says these different things. And then, and so he's the first, so he really discovers me very young, encourages me. And I, you know, I've tooted his horn ever since. He gives me two one-man shows at the Art Institute. I can't get one now. Mm-hmm. We begged the Art Institute to show him this. They wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I have two shows. I'm 25 and 27. I have two one-man shows. This is a big deal, you know? Yeah. And so after he was die, he died around 83 or 86, and I was in Canada. And I, I then wanted to kind of discover what his aesthetic was. What, I mean, what was, how did he, he, he's the first person to show Robert Frank. And he does a lot of things. He gives Bruce Davison, he shows all these magnet people. He's clearly into realism, but he shows Robert Rieger, who's the sports greatest sports photographer in history. He shows a guy who showed photographs sailboats. And I and I and I he didn't like to write. He hated to write, but he left all these letters, which I, I published them. And you know, published so many he wrote so many letters to Robert Frank, I was jealous. Because there's like a wad of these letters to Robert Frank. He wrote Walker Evans. He he wrote all these people. He was a letter guy, letter writer. He wrote me letters, and he wrote one that changed my life, which I published and republished, and I still write about. And in one letter, he writes, there's a teacher who who visits him from, uh, he's from Kentucky or someplace. I forgot his name, but I published it. And he, in that letter, the guy writes him a letter. He says, 
in the letter, he says, how do you make these selections? How do you select the photographers and how do you select the pictures? And of course, that's the ultimate question. You Edwards is the greatest living editor. You know, if you have ever had a show, curators don't want you in the room when they hang the show. It's like their bailiwick. They get to design the room moves or stuff. And there's constant tensions in these ship books over editing and what goes in. And I, I'm, I'm a control freak and I fight for my fight and whatever. And so he asks this question and you Edwards writes back. It's such a wonderful answer. He says, anything, and he's talking about photographs, looking at a photo. He says, anything that makes me feel good and glad to be alive hmm. is what I like. Anything is that the line? It's close to it. I could read it to you from a book. Anything yeah, yeah. that 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 makes me he says anything that's that that he makes me feel good and glad to be alive. Is that how you feel too? Do you relate to that? In terms no, of no, no, you Edwards. He said something else just before he died. He said he didn't like. He he began to go blind. And he said his greatest pleasure had been looking into the human face hmm. in life. Meaning, like walking down the street, like look at me, me look at you. That that had been his greatest pleasure in life, hmm. not reading or going to museums, but looking at you in his face. And then he said at the very end, "I don't like Americans anymore." And he said that he dies at eighty-six. The Vietnam War is over. He talked about going to shopping malls and what they were like. So I think this is a guy who was born. You know, grew up in the Depression. He's sent to school there. He grew up from the South. He So he's seeing America change. He's seeing Americans change and how they dress change. And, and this is someone who not only loves people, he loves Americans. He's really into photographs of American and American photographers. I mean, he, he'll show other people. He thought it was ridiculous that Zarkovsky did a book on Ache. He said, Ache? Who cares about Ache? He didn't care about Ache. Well, he didn't care, but he said everybody knew about Ache. I mean, everybody knew Ache was a great Ache. What's the point? And Zarkovsky published like four volumes of Ache. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting comment. He was more interested in young people doing new things, which is what Robert was when he showed him and what I was when I showed him. And that's what he liked to show, you know. Mm. He did 60 one-man shows, mostly one. He never did group shows. Hmm. And he said he didn't care for Americans anymore. Hmm. And he said that, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Hmm. What are you working on now? I just finished a film called Wanderer. The star is a dog, but it's also schizophrenic. It's going to be shown. Gavin Brown is my dealer my gallerist. He's going to show it in Manhattan in September, along with photographs and montages that are based on the people in the film. I've been working here in this place for about 45 years. <laughs> and I knew Fernie when he was, uh, you know, eight years old and I filmed him. And now he's 50 and he's, a, you know, mentally he's a schizophrenic <laughs> and he's a main character. But, you know, so is Dennis who just went by. So, it's done here. I feel very good about it. It's very dark, but I'm old, and when you get older, you get dark inside, mm -hmm. less hopeful. Um, so that'll be shown in September in Gavin Brown. What else are you showing in September at Gavin Brown? 
Well, the, there'll be, you know, the stuff on the walls, which, you know, pays for the rent, as they say. Photos. Photos and montages related to the film and, and the border, too. I did a lot of work at the border when, before there was a wall. Mm -hmm. he, I used to smuggle these Mexicans. I loved it. It's great. Mm -hmm. But now it's it's ugly. You know, when you see what federal authorities are doing to, to human beings, they're, they're taking people out of their homes, they're dragging husbands away from their wives, they're, they're separating children at the borders from their mother. It makes you want to vomit, and it makes you want to vomit on the American flag. It is just sickening. The, the total lack of humanity. You, you, you know, I don't give a fuck about the law. Cicero said the law is an ass. I've broken laws my whole life. You, you know, my brother-in-law said I'm a Republican because I do what I want. I've always done what I wanted. And, uh, you, you know, when you look at this lynching, the trouble with lynching is they tortured people. They didn't just lynch them, they tortured them. So it's about humanity. What, what kind of person tortures someone else or watches them being tortured? And, and what, kind of, what kind of country or what kind of voter supports police going into houses and taking people who, who've lived in this country, who've only lived in this country, who've never even remembered Mexico, who speak English and separates children from mothers? I mean, that's what Hitler did. What's wrong with these people? And it does come down to humanity. Human, you know, people with feelings don't do that. And these fucking shitheads who say, oh, they're breaking the law, there's something deeply troubling about them. Hmm. Because it's not about the law. It's about being a human. Hmm. How's that for a cheery ending? <laughs> I think you need some music. Jordan, you're going to have to bring... We, we're going to need some music in here, you know. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Okay. That was my conversation with Danny Lyon that we recorded in New Mexico. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Damien Lazarus, Michelle Macklem, Poddington Bear, and the Monks. For more information on the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, take a second and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show and we really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.